Welcome, and and, uh, thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We tackle difficult topics, and what's more difficult than divorce? Lisa, welcome to the show, and I want help pronouncing your last name. I should have checked with you off air. It's Wolowek? Wolowek? Wolowek, Wolowek. Wall of Vic, okay. Very and, good. Uh, it's a mouthful. Uh, well, <laughs> no, that wasn't very good, but thank you for being so gracious. Uh, Lisa, um, tell us a little bit about your background and why I'm talking to you about divorce. Well, um, I started out as a hospital social worker many decades ago. Um, I went to law school because I was looking for ways to integrate my skills but also to do more advocacy and I became an attorney. Um, I've worked representing children, representing battered women. I worked for a judge, and we started the first criminal court that handled only domestic violence cases in New York. Uh, my work now is predominantly in the family courts or divorce courts um, where people are seeking financial help, divorce, custody of their children, or orders of protection, restraining orders to protect them from abusive spouses. So you deal with a really difficult population because half of this country has been divorced and half of them think they have the worst divorce that anybody <laughs> has ever experienced, right? Right. Everybody, and, and I mentioned this to you when we were talking the other day. Yes. I always say, you know, divorce is like childbirth. None of it is easy, but some of it's a heck of a lot harder than others. Well, that's a really good way to put it. Um, I talk about trauma- what I call traumatic divorce. With dor- divorces or, se- or separations uh, with people who are unmarried, when they've been impacted by a history of domestic violence or substance abuse or untreated mental illness. And in those instances, when we talk about trauma, trauma has a real specific clinical meaning. Um, in the DSM-5, it talks about um, an overwhelming, life-threatening experience in which people feel vulnerable and helpless, and that is that is trauma. And if you've been exposed to domestic violence, not always are people traumatized, but particularly when it's chronic, um, when it's severe, um, people are really traumatized by lots and lots of verbal abuse, um, and domestic violence can take lots of different forms. But those okay. are the experiences that we talk about as being traumatic, and that's what I'm referring to when I talk about traumatic divorce and separation. And they're I think, not, you know, for, yeah, go ahead. for the ease of conversation, we can basically say it's the traumatic divorce is usually the divorce where there's some sort of uh, intimate partner violence or abuse. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, right. and I like to use the term, although I don't always do it, you know, we, we switch our terms so much, you know, it was domestic violence, and everybody knew that that meant hitting. Uh, so then we changed it to uh, intimate partner uh, mm-hmm. violence, but we still had the violence thing. And then, you know, as society changed, then we, we stuck more with the intimate partner, and, and then we now we're moving to gendered violence, which I think has a little bit different meaning. Uh, you know, it, it encompasses domestic violence, but in my view it has a little bit different meaning. So we're we're playing all over the place with the uh, verbiage that we use, but basically we're talking about abuse, chronic and differing levels of abuse. But not always so, physical. If you look at um, Evan correct. Stark, um, who's a professor emeritus at Rutgers University, he talks about what we call coercive control, and I think that's the best definition that I've ever heard of. Because well, in then fact, you're the, talking the co- yeah. 
Go ahead. Yeah, the, coer- the studies have shown that coercive control actually is more impactful uh, and, and has longer-term um, uh, detrimental effect on people than the actual physical violence. Well, that's um, right, because they're so, talking about economic abuse. I know you recently did a show on economic abuse, which sounded really interesting. There's verbal abuse, emotional abuse, there's sexual abuse, there's financial abuse. So it takes many different forms. And often people do talk about, you know, having someone belittle them as a parent, um, constantly demeaning them, cursing at them all the time in the presence of the children. Amazingly enough, that sticks with people more, I think, than than the physical, you know, bruises, which heal. I always say I'm going to write a book called Sticks and Stones Can Break My Bones, But Words Will Hurt Forever. They do. They do. I really think that's true. Someone else told me I was at a conference where a woman was talking about, presenting about verbal abuse, and she said, verbal abuse is the lies people tell you about yourself that you believe. And I just love ah, that. Love yeah. That. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. So when we're talking traumatic divorce, and um, the reason we're talking about it is because you have a new book out, and we're going to talk I more do. specifically about the book. Um, but let's talk more about the groundwork here. When we're talking traumatic divorce, we've kind of separated the wheat from the chaff here. We're talking, mm-hmm. yes, yes, all divorce is difficult, but we're talking divorce that truly creates trauma. What creates more trauma than child custody issues? Oh, boy. I think they're, those are yeah. really the awful situations. And I Absolutely. think what's, yeah, and what's terrible for battered women is when they cannot protect their children, and that's a really terrible thing. Yeah, you know, absolutely. it's almost like a double whammy. Like they were traumatized initially, and then if they go to court and ask for custody and they're not believed, then they're yes. traumatized again. And they watch their children being further exposed to more trauma. You know, they're out of the situation, but the kids are still going back and forth. That's mm-hmm. a terrible thing. And that, in fact, at least in some of the reading that I've done, is a major reason why women stay. Because at least if they stay in that abusive situation, they can put themselves before their children. If they actually go through separation or divorce, the courts are going to require that that abusive man have access to his children, often unsupervised, uh, frequently often. unsupervised. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then you can't do a thing to protect them. And so that is one of the, you know, people always ask that question of why doesn't she leave? Why doesn't she just leave? Nobody ever says that. Why does he do that? Um, But that's one of of the major reasons. And, in fact, I recently, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I recently, um, someone consulted with me, a woman consulted with me, and she had learned many years ago that um, a relative of her husband had sexually abused their daughter when she was younger. And she was terrified that if she left with the children, that he would get unsupervised visits and this person would still have access to her daughter to sexually abuse her again. So she stayed. She stayed until they were going off to college, at which point the kids said to her, Mom, you have to leave. And she did. Yeah. You yeah. know, but, yeah. that's, but that, she was but... really staying to protect. You know, I've often heard people make aspersions about how the weakness of women who allow themselves to be in a domestic violence situation. And I think, are you kidding me? These are the strongest women I have ever met. Mm-hmm. The strongest mm-hmm. women. Can you imagine making that choice in your life to protect your children? Going through that because that's what you think you you know you have to do in order to protect your children. That's not a weak woman. 
that is not a weak woman. Um, no, but that's no. a little tangent that I have. Yeah, no, yeah. but it's totally true. I mean, I, I um, do the work that I do because representing better women because they're so courageous. They're sca- that doesn't mean that they're not scared. Of course they are, you know. Yes. But they're willing to go through the court experience to do this, and it's not easy. Oh, no. And there, it seems like no matter how progressive the uh, the court jurisdiction is, no matter how well-informed the judges are, it's just egregious. Going through that experience, the 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 risks, the assumptions. I uh, actually had a family court judge on the show a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, and I was told that this judge had a really good understanding of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. I asked her actually off air. I said, "What goes through a family court judge's mind when they grant custody to a man who has a domestic, documented domestic violence?" Because of course I, I I said documented because if it's just he said she said then blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. many times this is documented. And I said, "What goes through your mind?" And this judge said, "Well, you have to understand the the woman is is frantic and she's just you know disorganized and she just clearly doesn't have it all together." So if the domestic violence isn't that bad, we'll give custody to the man who who, who does have it together. He's got his life in order. Well, and that's an important point. Yeah, because what no we're seeing. Concept. Yeah, the, the, so what the we're seeing. Has no concept of domestic violence, does she? Well, it's also you have no concept of what traumatized people look like. And I don't consider, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, what you hear people say, PTSD. I don't really think about that as a mental illness. People are going to be symptomatic. They're going to have symptoms, um, and they can look like psychiatric problems. And certainly, sometimes they need—they frequently need mental health counseling. Sometimes medication, sometimes a psychiatrist. But they will only get better if we provide them with safety, and if their children are safe. And if we don't step in and say, "You get custody," we'd like you to get some help. And most of my clients would be happy to get the help, right? Of course they want help. Yes, of course. Um, But they also want to keep their kids safe, and they're not going to start to heal, and neither will their children, by the way, until there's that separation and there's safety. And the safety just, you know, it's an emotional safety. It's a physical safety. It's knowing that your kids are okay. In cases of domestic violence, there's a higher incidence of the children being physically abused there's a higher incidence of sexual abuse. And I think the experience of being disparaged and not believed has the potential to add to the trauma. So you start to talk about cumulative effects of trauma. So we've laid the groundwork here, and obviously you have extensive experience dealing with, with this traumatic divorce. What prompted Is that what prompted you to write the book, or were you trying to accomplish something specific with the book? I wanted to change the conversation. When I'm in court, I hear people talking nonstop about high-conflict divorce. And high-conflict divorce, people say, yes, it includes incidents of domestic violence. And it's two people with you know, personality disorder issues, and they get very vengeful. They make up allegations. They're constantly accusing each other. They're not putting their needs of the children first. And when you really look at the research on high-conflict divorce, I mean, it was wonderful that people were studying this new phenomenon. You're talking about in the 70s and the 80s, 
they didn't know what it meant. The first studies about divorce were called father absence studies, which tells you something about what was valued and the biases that might have existed. And then they said, oh, look, these families that are where the kids are having the most trouble and the parents are having the most trouble, well, there's some domestic violence in those cases and alcohol abuse. But they didn't really do an in-depth analysis of what kind of abuse there was. Most people now say, people who you know espouse this high-conflict divorce theory, they say, oh, yeah, there's you know situational violence, um, which really doesn't get at what coercive control and abuse is. And so I really wanted to change the subject and to talk about and integrate the study of trauma and divorce because I think if we don't, we really don't get to the heart of the problem of why some cases can't be easily resolved. High conflict, to me, it sounds like we're saying both people are arguing, both people are at fault. And but isn't domestic that what violence is kind much of wedded to. They want to make it equal on both sides. They want to make it. I, I actually went through uh, guardian ad litem training in mm-hmm. in my county through the bar mm-hmm. association, and I never got hired as a guardian ad litem because I was very clear in saying no. If there is abuse, if there's documented um, uh, abuse, you cannot treat this as what she says is as valid as what he says, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. You have to take into account the fact that there has been this this abuse and pattern. And I was told that that was not an acceptable attitude, that I had to go into this assuming that both of them were absolutely right, both of them were had justice on their sides, both of them were telling the truth, both of them, both of them, both of them. And I'm going, that's probably true with normal you know, couples, but if you have this abuse factor in there, if you have this intimate partner abuse thing, that's not the, the case, and you're doing it's it. It's not a level playing field. Yeah, it's not level. Right. Yeah. And to treat it as if it's a level playing field, you're hurting people. Well, I think um, that the criminal courts have done a better job than the family courts. Um, I, w- I started initially in the criminal court, and there was a lot of money um, put into the system around the country through the Violence Against Women Act and other laws that were being passed where they put in a lot of training for law enforcement, a lot of training for judges, civil legal services for women. So we really started to see the criminal courts say, you know, let's have, um, you know, services in the courthouse. Um, Let's hold people accountable for what they do. And I don't think you see as much of that bias in the criminal courts. Family courts, it's um, it's a lower standard of proof, um, and it's closed, in criminal court, the doors are open to the public because the Sixth Amendment says that you have the right to a public trial. Family court, although they say it's open, I have never been in a family court where it actually was. Um, the, it's at the discretion of the judge, so only litigants and their attorneys go in. And I think um, so not having... I can't. I couldn't go into a family court and sit and observe? I don't think you could. They do have court watch programs, which I think are very important, but I think one of the problems is the lack of training and a lack of agreement on what domestic violence is, theories that don't make sense about what's really going on, the lack of integration, and the fact that people don't see what's going on in the courts. It's really very important that um, it be an op- we should respect people's privacy, 
maybe names have to be redacted. Um, but still, you know, there should be some oversight into what's happening here. I have often bemoaned the fact that judges just don't seem to get it. They just have in the court, and, and grant you my experience is limited. I'm not an attorney, but I've been involved, I've seen, I've observed, etc. And of those places that I've seen and observed, it appears to me that a lot of the judges just really don't grasp what it means to be in a traumatic divorce situation or grasp what it means for uh, um, the experience of a family to live with domestic violence. Well, Heather, I think that that, um, judges are lawyers, and they rely on the mental health professionals to give them information. They rely on them for expert opinions, for custody evaluations. And bear in mind, there's been national studies about this where Saunders, for example, did a National Institute of Justice study across the country and looked at custody evaluators. And they were not being, when they went to school, if they're in their late 50s, 60s, 70s, they didn't have training on domestic violence in graduate schools. They didn't have training on trauma. These are emerging fields. So the people, you know, I don't want to, it's easy to sort of say it's the judge's fault, but they're not, they're relying on professionals who, maybe have had all of their training after finishing their doctorate on domestic violence from one source, and that's a limited source, and perhaps there's bias there. Um, And then judges are human. They have their own biases. There's been one of the things I talk about in my book is gender bias in the family courts. There were, in the 80s, there were 43 studies of all the courts across in in 43 states And they said, oh, look, there's bias against women in the courts. But when you speak to most people, they think that the bias is against men in custody disputes, which is really not borne out with the research and literature. So people have biases. The people they're relying on, the mental health professionals, may or may not be trained. Um, Saunders said that in his study that um, there was a significant amount of custody evaluators who disregarded documented evidence of abuse. They had very poor understanding about domestic violence, and those were the ones who tended to give custody to batterers or joint custody. So um, we need to do better. So, okay, I don't, I'm, I'm writing down this question because this isn't a good place for this question. So I'm, I'll come back to this question. Sure. Tell me more about what's in your book. If I buy your book, and by the way, what's the title of your tour, of your book? It's called Traumatic Divorce and Separation, The Impact of Domestic Violence and Substance Abuse in Custody and Divorce. Okay, thank you. We, I'm, we, we'd be just creating a And I forget it, too. I have to look at my flyer like, ah, oh, yes. <laughs> so what do I talk about? I talk about um, a definition of the problem, why we don't really understand what you know, that some divorces are traumatic and what makes them different, um, how to differentiate between sort of normal divorce, which might be a crisis, but it isn't traumatic, and those families where they're really not going to be able to negotiate a settlement, not going to be able to resolve things because they're dealing with really intractable issues like substance abuse, like domestic violence, like untreated mental illness sometimes. I talk about the different definitions of domestic violence, 
which I think really confuses the courts um, and makes it really hard to identify whether or not this has occurred if you don't really agree on whether or not it's situational, whether it's a pattern of behavior that's persisted for years. Um, I also talk about how do we identify trauma in children, what do, what do traumatized children look like, because there's disagreement about that. There are theories like parental alienation uh, where people really discredit symptoms of trauma, um, and I think that's that's a mistake. Um, how do people identify sexual abuse, although I don't consider myself an expert in that area, but there's a lot of research um, and study available, and we need to credit the symptoms that the experts have found. I talk about the history of the family courts and the gender bias. Um, I talk about economic abuse. So you don't have to have a kid to read this book. You could be a parent, uh, you know, a a woman without children who's going through divorce, and there could be someone who's hiding their money or refusing to support them or wasting assets or putting them in debt. And so all of that's really addressed in the in the book. And then finally, I talk about where do we, how do we go forward, and how do we, um, what kinds of solutions would work? And I think we need a lot more graduate education, obviously, in domestic violence in all the disciplines. But also, I think that we should have what we call the problem-solving courts, where there are services in the courthouse or or close by that people can access, and that we have long-term monitoring of batterers. And I think we have to think about really long-term supervised visitation programs because there's a real dearth of that, and that's a problem. That's often the reason why they unsupervise visits. Well, and, you know, one of the things that I found about supervised visitation in my state is it is absolutely abysmal when they hire people to do supervised visits. This can be dangerous. It requires, mm-hmm. I would think, a certain level of training and expertise and sensitivity, and the pay is like minimum wage. Heather, that's such an important so, point because this is a real safety thing, right? We need their yeah. help and we we need them to be trained. I don't know of any graduate program in how to be a trained supervised visit, you know, visitation supervisor. I don't know of any at this point. Well, and I don't think they're looking when they're, at least in, in my state, and uh, they're not looking for people with that level of training and education. Right. They're not. Right. They're looking at it as, you know, oh, oh you don't want to be a dishwasher this week? Then apply for this job. It might pay 50 cents more an hour. Mm. Um, and I think And you can just imagine. Mistake. I think so, too. Yes. I think it's a terrible problem. And there are people who really, this is not, you know, batterers are not just abusive. Um, Bancroft, Lundy Bancroft talks about... Um, that their parenting is really flawed and kind of toxic. That's not the word that he used, but I would I would say that it's pretty toxic. Belittling the mother and putting her down and undermining her role with the kids. And that's that's pretty much par for the course. So I don't think you're going to, and a lot of manipulation, right? They feel very entitled, these guys. So how are oh, yeah. you going to change that in six weeks of supervised visitation. This is really going to be well, years and years of work. And and if I understand supervised visitation, um, they go through a period where they meet at a McDonald's or maybe even in a, in a, a, mm-hmm. a facility um, where the uh, visitation supervisor can see the, the, pers- the parent interact with the children. Well, of course that parent's going to not go. <laughs> I mean, what kind of an idiot is going to do something during that supervised visitation 
that indicates he's not anything other than a perfect, one, perfectly wonderful, attentive parent. Of course, they're going to be on their best behavior. And then in six weeks, the supervised visitor, visit the visit supervisor, mm-hmm. says, "Well, yep, they seem to get along well. You know, so we don't need to have supervised visitation anymore." I, it, I mean, to me, it's just a joke. Well, there's another issue too, which people don't know what they're looking at in terms of the children. Children typically love both their parents, um, and they may love a parent who's been abusive. They may be protective of them. Um, They can be manipulated. In a supervised visitation setting, they may feel safe, and they may be glad to see the batterer. They may not look afraid, and then that is misconstrued. You know, we could be talking about a, a child who's got a trauma bond with this parent, and what people are saying is, look, the child showed no fear, so the abuse couldn't be real. That's not true. Oh, gosh. There's so many things. Now, one of the things that we didn't talk about when we were talking about the courts and child supervision and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff is the ancillary uh, people that are involved, all of the levels, depending on the income of the litigants, um, you know, I, I notice that people who have no income tend to uh, not have all the psych evals and every, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the GALs and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff because there's nobody to pay for them. Um, but for people that have some resources, I mean, we have dozens of people that can jump on board uh, for one side or the other. And you mentioned the Daniel Saunders study, which was earth-shaking, I think. Um, yes. And he yes. also talks about all of this, you know, and, and I call it kind of an industry of ancillary people for the court. You've got guardians ad litem, and you can That's have right. one for each side. You've mm-hmm. got psychologists, and mm-hmm. you can have one, two, and three. You can have, a, I mean, there's just masses of people that can be called on board. And so expensive when you think about it. And no real required training for any of these people. I think sometimes... And not as often as we see it. But I think sometimes we need a really skilled mental health evaluation to determine, for example, um, if a parent has a substance abuse problem. Because that's not just a test. You really need someone who really is knowledgeable and an expert in that area. For example, if a child is sexually abused, that's the allegation. Not everybody can make that assessment. And, yes, they're not supposed to make those assessments unless they're trained, but the fact is people kind of present the facts, so-called, and say, look, you know, the timing of this is suspect because she just made these allegations of sex abuse during the custody case, well, or when she separated. And, in fact, people, it tends to be the reason why people separate, because they learn that the spouse was abusive, right? That would be the right reason to leave. And yet we have people, the mental health professionals, who don't really understand what they're seeing. And and that's a problem. Of course it is. And I have often said that, you know, in in my layperson's view, courts seem to operate under three assumptions. One is that just because he does mean things to her doesn't mean it's going to hurt the kids. You're so right. Yes, exactly. The other one is every child needs his father. Yeah. And I say, I don't care whether it's a father or a mother, they need them if they're good. If they're Mm -hmm. detrimental to the child, they don't need them. You know, can can we quit assuming that 
every man who biologically, you know, creates a child is a good father, a good influence, a positive uh, uh, thing in a child's life. I mean, I think that's just a very naive assumption. And I, and again, I don't mean to be terribly sexist here, although I don't object to being sexist a little bit. Um, I don't care whether it's the mother or the father. If they're detrimental and horrible to this child, get them out of the child's life. It, it's not doing or- anybody any good. Well, I, I agree to a point. I don't know if we want to completely remove them from the child's life because you don't want a child. What I've heard people, mental health professionals, psychiatrists say to me is you don't want the child to fantasize that this person is, you know, somebody that they're not. So a supervised setting, and not all, and not, some children really shouldn't see the other parent if it's so abusive. But, for example, if the child really, in a safe setting, gets to see, like, wow, this person's crazy, that is better than idealizing the person. Yeah. And then they can well, kind of make I'm their own decision. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do I, think I, you've I, raised an important Yeah. I think you've raised a very And I wanted to get to the to the third uh, uh point that I see. Uh the third tenet that uh courts appear family courts appear to operate under is she lies. Right. That's gender bias, I mean, don't I, you think? When we have uh, a different oh, standard and for that's the truth then because yeah. you have a, a section in your book about gender bias. Can you talk more about gender bias? I mean, haven't we're the 21st century, for heaven's sake, and we still have gender bias? What's that all about in the courts, and how does that impact traumatic divorce? It's, uh, well, yeah, how does it impact it? I think that we compound the trauma when we don't believe battered women. I do think you alluded to it when you said that there's this real... Uh, value, cultural value that we have that fathers are so important in children's lives. And sure, they are, but as you say, a toxic parent is a toxic parent, and we need to set restrictions on that. I There is, a, you know, look, the, the research in the 80s and 90s said that there was gender bias against women, that there, and it gets evidence in ways like we expect more from women in a custody case, for example, than in men. They noticed that women, their incomes dropped precipitously with divorce or separation and that men's rose. Now, some of that has been corrected through laws about mandatory um, spousal support and mandatory child support, and that's good. But what we're left with is um, how we view women and men and, um, and, and allegations of domestic violence. You know, are we, who are we protecting and why it's a terrible problem. There was a three recent studies that I talked about in my book because the gender bias studies um, in the past, right? We know that that's those were problems, but okay, people think that there's been progress, and I think we've lagged, especially in the family courts. So um, I think it was one study was in Arizona. Um, there were studies in Massachusetts. So these were statewide studies, and one in the New York City family courts. And they talked about lawyers and the battered mothers, the the lawyers for the battered mothers and the battered mothers feeling unsafe in the courthouse, um, feeling that they were not believed, um, immigrant women being treated terribly. Often my clients who are immigrants are told to give up court and they're treated as if they're a criminal and a flight risk. Um you know, there are just awful issues and a tendency not to believe these allegations of domestic violence. And so there you go, that's the gender bias. And honestly, when I read this research about the New York City Family Courts and the other courts around the country, I said, that's my experience. You know, at 5 p.m. in the New York City Family Court, 
when the Safer Victim Services office closes where your client can wait in safety because it's 5 p.m. they close and the order protection's not ready yet, so you have to wait for the clerk's office to finish, they're sitting in a waiting room 20 feet away from the batterer who's going to stalk them. Sometimes they take pictures of them and email them, text them to their friends who then you know follow them. Um, we still have a problem with gender bias. It's still continuing. I hope this book really changes the conversation so that we start to protect the people who were abused. And when we're talking about the gender bias, now is that, uh, and I'm not familiar with that study. I'd, I'd love it if you could give me that study on the New York there Family Court. There are three. Uh, oh, on the New York Family Court, right. It's Voices of Women Organizing Project. And um, I think I can give you the link. So okay. I'm happy to do that. Um Okay, well, we can communicate on that later. Um, Voices of Women Organizing Project? Project, yeah. Okay, I can Google that because um, I'd like to see that because when we're talking about this gender bias in the family courts, we're not talking just the judges. We're no. talking that whole cadre of ancillary folks um, mm-hmm. uh, that influence us and whom we contact uh, and have contact with when we go through a divorce and, and uh, child custody. Um, so there are even looser guidelines for how guardians ad litem can be trained. Some some jurisdictions require that guardians ad litem uh, uh, guardians ad litem be uh, uh, attorneys. Some of right them in New York, for example, it's an yeah it's attorney for the child, and um, so in a custody case, um, the children are often represented by an attorney, and as you say, they may not have any training in domestic violence at all. Or child and again, and I know I'm going to step on some toes here, but in my experience, what I've seen is it's good money to be a GAL. It doesn't require a great deal of effort like litigation does. Um, and it's kind of like the go-to if you want to cut back on your practice but not on your income from attorneys. And I know I'm saying some wild generalizations here, so you know, don't, don't send me the emails. I know, I know, but I'm throwing it out there for discussion. Is is you know the the use of a GAL. Um, do you have any? Have you seen any um, situations or whatever? Where, what, what do you think about GALs and their training and their their backgrounds in general? Well, I think children need an attorney. I don't think they need a guardian. Um, and I, I think there's a difference in New York State. We have attorneys for the children, and it's a flawed system. It's not a perfect system, but I think it's somewhat better. Um, I think that um, some of the people do work very hard and care about the kids. They typically, in New York, for example, they have enormous caseloads, and they just can't do this kind of work easily. You know, when you have 100 cases, when you have 100 families, I mean, that's just impossible to really know these cases. Um, And sometimes it's kind of a club where you know you're going to be, you know, appointed a lot, by this judge, and so you want to kind of get along with the judge and get along with the parties and be, you know, recommended for cases where they're paying nicely. And so, you know, there's a little bit of influence here. Like, for example, if it's a private pay guardian ad litem, who's paying? And I'm sure they know. Mm-hmm. Gives yeah. you a little and scary feeling the there. Report is- no, actually, that wasn't part of the Saunders report. There was another, mm-hmm. I can't remember his name right now, but we actually did a show on uh, with a researcher who um, evaluated and, and researched um, whether or not um, 
court evaluators are influenced by who's paying the bill. Um, well, that's that okay. So that's custody evaluators as opposed to guardians ad litem for the children, right? So it's a little bit different. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, but I'd be very interested to hear more about that. Yeah. I can get you that information. And as I said, we did do a show uh, about a year ago, I think, uh, with that gentleman. And, and it, I'm sorry his name escapes me right now, but I'll get back to you on that. That's um, great. Thank you. So. So what we're looking at is we have the research now to show that these things exist. We have the research. Um, is it taking too long for that to filter into the court decision makers' hands? Why, why isn't why aren't things changing more quickly? I think it's taking too long. Um, and if you're a mother of a traumatized child. Of course, you would feel the same, right? That you know, any time sure. that your child's being, you know, at risk is it must be awful. Um, why is this continuing? I think that gender bias continues. We have theories. Um, there's a very organized fathers' rights movement. Um, there's um, parental alienation, which I think um, refuses to you know, die. Yeah. yeah, yeah, refuses to die. Where you know, and literally what it is saying, because people think that. You know, parental alienation means when a parent badmouths the other, and that's not a good thing. I would agree it's not a good thing, but that's not what parental alienation theory says. Parental alienation theory says that typically mothers, and it's very gendered, right? It's not neutral here. Typically mothers implant false memories of abuse, physical or sexual, in their children to gain weight in the custody litigation. And, you know, there's no real, it's not recognized in the DSM-5, either as a disorder oh, well, and, and or as a syndrome. Association has discredited. But what I've noticed right. with, the, uh, uh, with parental alienation, which started out when Richard Gardner invented it in the 80s, exactly. uh, it, started, it started out as parental alienation syndrome. Right. And since it, it has been debunked as a syndrome, I'm noticing a lot of the legal organizations and family court organizations are referring to it as parental alienation, period. Right. And That's dropping right. the syndrome, thinking that somehow or other that legitimizes the whole concept, um, which in my and they're also certainly... Re- right, they also refer to it as gatekeeping, where mothers are really yeah. anxious about the fathers, and so they could be alienating. There's no empirical support for that term. You know, they're sort of trying to pull this together, and you have to look at more than is there research, but is the research of good quality. Um, I, well, you and, know, I think it's very flawed. Yeah, yeah, you can find some really flawed and and yes. what we refer to as junk science um, mm-hmm. on how Gardner's theory and the parental alienation theories are are really legitimate and supported, and not the case, really. Um, So I'm wondering if because we've had so much research and because um, parental alienation theory um, supports those assumptions, those those, um, sexist assumptions that we've had for many years, are we still talking about all of this being uh, a gender bias issue? And if so, what are we going to do about it? And I would love to have the answer to that. Um, I do think it's a gender bias. I think it's a question of gender bias when um, we hold women and men to different standards of proof. 
Um, and when there's kind of, you know, here is this woman coming in to interfere with this guy's relationship with his children. I mean, he just wants to be a father, right? And, yeah, he wanted uh, that as soon as the divorce papers were signed, probably. Right. So, I mean, we have yeah. to be able to look at what's the quality of the parenting. Yeah. Why don't we believe allegations of domestic violence? You know, be, you know, I think of the Me Too movement, which is catching fire now, and I'm thrilled, and I hope that it lights up what's going on in the family courts. We, we, I'm looking at the clock going, no, no, not, not, you know. We have about 15 or 20 minutes left, and okay. we haven't talked about the issue of the mental illness. And when you were talking, when I was first skimming through um, the, the mental illness uh, part of, of your table of contents, mm-hmm. I thought, ooh, this one, it, it's so tricky for me. Um, it is because tricky. Because so, so often tricky. mental illness is used to blame the victim. Mm-hmm. And I was really appreciative when at the beginning of our conversation you kept referring to it as untreated mental illness, untreated mental illness, and I think that's the distinguishing thing. Can you talk a little bit about the role of untreated mental illness and mental illness in general in traumatic divorce? Well, I think we have to separate what could be symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, whether it's somebody you know medicating themselves with alcohol or pills, and those, I think, are things that we need to address and to help people with. The other thing that I spoke about it is the um, the fact that we don't have a diagnosis for batterers, and um, there's no real clear, you know, um, point of view in the mental health profession as to whether or not um, men who batter are, have some diagnosis. We don't have that. And there's research that kind of goes both ways. Um, I think that, you know, Lindy Bancroft talks about batterers have certain traits. And because and it's important because then we can detect who they are, right? Because they are manipulative. They have a sense of entitlement. They're not narcissists because narcissists aren't typically violent. Um, and we don't have a way of dealing with this. We don't have treatment. We have batterers treatment programs, and there's no, you know, guidelines or requirements for the training for people who do this. And there's no evidence and, that it and works. It's generally assumed that. I mean, it's generally um, viewed as they're really, really have limited value. Well, I, I think that's. Programs. I think that. I think that's true. I would not recommend um, batterers treatment programs. I think we need much more research. Um, I think that, you know, if you listen to Lundy Bancroft, who has run batterers programs, they're not limited to six months. And he will say in his research that, you know, they're not successful very often. Does that mean that you shouldn't try at all? I'm not saying that. Some of what's gone on here is criminal behavior and should be criminally punished, though. Um, And I think that's often where people kind of skate through the process, and that doesn't necessarily happen. I think alcohol, misuse of alcohol, really fuels the, the the extent of the domestic violence, the severity of the injuries. Um, so somebody can be an alcoholic and a batterer, and they're two problems. But at least if we stop the drinking um, or are aware of what it is as a risk factor, the injuries they think are usually not as severe. Um, then there are batterers who are very, very flagrantly psychotic. They are suicidal. They are misusing drugs and alcohol. And those are the ones where we really have to be concerned about homicides. And they're a real, you know, real risk factor there. So so I think that um, 
I look at it very broadly. Yes, I talk about it, you know, in terms of women and what kinds of issues they might have. But I'm also looking at the fact that we don't really have um, an agreement and enough understanding about how, what is a batterer and what, what kind of characteristic he's, he has. And yet, when I talk with my colleagues, we all know who they are by yeah. their, you know, by their, you know, a sense of entitlement, sort of this patriarchal culture that they buy into, and everything revolves around them, and they minimize what they do. So it's kind of, oh, you can absolutely. sort of, yeah, right? And and they also, the very first thing that they ever come up with, and I, and when I was first recognizing this, I thought, wow, wow, wow. And then I started thinking, really, really, this is as much as you can go for. Um, the the first thing out of their mouths is, well, she's the one who abused me. She abused me. I'm Always. the abused party. Always. You know, I mean, it's like, I mean, it, you can set your watch by it, you know. I right. Mean, I'm You're so right. That, that it, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And people say, well, well, maybe I kind of pushed her, but, you know, she was being so nasty, and they'll say a few other choice words about what she was doing, and, you know, oh, yeah. so yeah, And actually, she abused me. You know, she right. was the one that was abusive. She's the, she's abusive, and she's mentally ill. Right. Um, look, look, those she's are crazy. the go-to positions. The go-to However, positions. However, what I want to say is that on the criminal side in law enforcement, about 25 years ago, we developed something called primary aggressor laws, because once we set up mandatory arrest, then the cops started arresting both because the guys were saying, hey, no, she abused me. And they taught the police to do a primary aggressor analysis. Who seems to be threatened? Is there a history of orders of protection? Look at the relative size of the parties. And the cops can figure it out a little better now. And we can do better about this in family court, too. Now, um, in talking about um, uh, mental health, substance abuse, mm-hmm. um, partner violence, partner abuse, um, are there any other scenarios that you can think of that that have led to traumatic divorce in your in your experience and by your definition? Um, I have seen people who are very verbally abusive, not super physical grabbing, pushing sometimes, um, a lot of threats to get custody of the children. And you hear a pattern of very, very controlling behavior, almost I would say like OCD, you know, where they're um, really, you know, obsessing about you've got to do everything with the kids just so, or the person who's demanding it will really snap, for lack of a better word. Um, And those are bad cases because the courts don't necessarily spot you know, the mental health problem that's here, the controlling, coercively controlling behavior and the obsession for all the little things like, you know, put your shoes, you know, in exactly this place and use only super filtered water to cook the food. And it's impossible to keep track of all those things and it just takes over, you know, everything in the house. So those are you had mentioned, and I actually wrote this down because it was so. Uh, it struck me. We don't have a diagnosis diagnosis for abusive men, and I thought, wow, look at all the books that are written about, um, you know, Stockholm syndrome and battered women's, yes. you know, syndrome, and I'm I'm not recalling all of them. You know, the dependency syndrome. You know, I mean, we have right. all of these different things lined up for the victim, but what have we done to? Uh, um, 
you know, to, to try and pinpoint some sort of diagnosis for these men. And, of course, the problem is is that there's not one kind of an abuser. It's like saying, it's, you know, That's abusers true. are like not... cancer. I mean, you can say cancer, and there's some similarities, but lung cancer is very different from breast cancer, and it's treated differently, and it behaves differently. Right. It's not a um, homogeneous group. They're different. And you also need right. to be able to really go through this, you know, like, we don't really have a defined way to say who is the most dangerous, but we also know that separation is the most critically dangerous time. And yeah. there is, you know, Jacqueline Campbell has done a lot of research on sort of these lethality assessments. I think we need to, the custody court should be taking a very hard look at that because what do you have there? You have separation, you have somebody who's always been in charge. And now he's really losing control because the kids aren't with him anymore and she's not with him. And that's when it can really escalate. You know, I had, we had a situation a few years ago uh, where I live uh, where a man went into uh, court and shot up people. And mm-hmm. it was a domestic violence situation. Mm-hmm. And the, all of the analysis and all the reportage, and uh, and my first thought was, of course, He's angry with the court because for the first time in his life, somebody has a higher authority. Yes. Very, very good And point. I think that's the issue. For the first time, the right. courts can he, make them do something. He's not Nobody in control. Right. Yes. And so yes. not for all batterers, but for some batterers, it's a very dangerous time. And we need to think about that in terms of how do we order visitation? Do we order visitation? You know, I mean, I'm remembering, um, you know, the it can be very dangerous. People can commit suicide and kill the kids and the wife first and then themselves. You know, so it's it's a very critical moment. And if we don't even, if we just don't consider it, that's, that's you well, know, a judge is supposed to be looking at for the best interest of everybody. And so often those family annihilators are not, they do not have a history of, of physical or aggressive violence. Um, toward others, they they don't. Um, right. But that's, that's right. What, that's right. That what they go to is the family annihilator. Um, one of the other things, and I'm speeding it up here because we're running out of time. We you need we to come are. back. Please okay. tell me you'll come back. Um, oh, I will. Thank but, you. It's been a pleasure. You know, so you really you're very informed on this topic. So it's really a pleasure to speak with you. Well, I am. You know, it's uh, thank you for that. Um, but you mentioned uh, the integrated response, and what I'm seeing is uh, there isn't an integrated response. So oftentimes, a woman will be told by CPS, "You need to keep him away. If you don't keep him away from these kids, mm-hmm. we're going to take the kids away." Then right. she goes to court, and it's, "Well, you can't keep your kids away from him because that's custodial interference or parental alienation, and we right. will take your kids away and punish you." Uh, th- what do you mean by integrated dispo- response? And who would be involved, and how do we get there? Well, I think we have models in the criminal court that we can borrow from. I think that we can bring other professions in to the courthouse. Um, we have family justice projects and you know who handle basically the criminal, and then people can be referred. People can be referred and still valuing their privacy and confidentiality. But we could, you know, a mother coming in could be referred right there to a domestic violence shelter. And in some courts, we do that. Um, Could be, you know, there could be a visitation supervised program there in the courthouse. Um, There could be medical personnel. You know, we can do this. Um, We can have people from various professions available. And we have to think about, you know, just 
not just not just having those people available, but having people who understand trauma and who understand. Well, and one of the things with continuing education is it's all well and good to tell judges that they have to have a, a brush up now and then. It's all well and good mm-hmm. to say guardians ad litem have to have training or attorneys have to have training. But who says by whom? I have I attended some trainings where I have been appalled Me at too. what has been taught about domestic violence. I have been also. I know. Um, you know, should there be a standardized curriculum? Um, those are important issues to think about. Who's going to standardize the curriculum? Um, do we teach parental alienation when it's not in the DSM-5? Is that really appropriate? Because people assume that that's just fact, right? Um, you know, I think we have to be very careful, but we have to have – We, ha- I think we have to have – battered women at the table. And I think that survivors of domestic violence have to be there to help us and to help with the observations of the courts and to help us figure out, you know, how to teach and how to train people on this. We can't do it all ourselves. We have to, you know, they're they're a wonderful set of eyes and we need their, you know, their perceptions about about this. I think that's you... a really interesting concept. Um, I think that in the fe- I've I've often been struck by the field of domestic violence, um, advocacy, intervention, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. and compared it to the field of alcohol um, treatment. Oh, that's it true. It seems to me that in alcohol treatment, whether you're talking AA or whether you're talking at some sort of professional level, there is value placed on the recovering alcoholic and that person's experiences. Mm. I have never really seen that when it comes to battered women, as you've been calling them, or abused women. Survivors would be, I don't like to use the word victim, so survivors would be a great way to say it. Well, I think when you're being victimized, you're perfectly well and good to say you're a victim, but survivors of victimization. Mm. um, Yeah, and I haven't seen value placed on the experiences and the learned experiences of survivors of um, intimate partner abuse. And that is a really interesting concept. Uh, I think women who, uh, I, and that's one of my areas of, in, of interest, is the long-term effects you know, of, of uh, survivors. And I think that oftentimes women learn that once they've been through that, they're supposed to forget, forgive, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, move on, you know, put it in the past, right. you know, right. And not even acknowledge that, even though everything from their economics to their their brain neura, uh, synapses Absolutely. have changed. Yes. Um, but there, so it becomes a secret thing. You can't talk about it. You can't mention it, or you're disparaged or looked at differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea of bringing that wealth of experience to the table, as you call it, sounds fascinating to me. How how could that happen? Well, I think the women are there, um, and often if you look at the grassroots organizations, um, they do mentoring. You know, someone who survived and left will work with somebody who's still in the process and still in litigation and help them, Um, and I think that women have been doing that for each other for a long time. One of the things I thought was really made me feel so much better was um, reading about women who are working in economic abuse and domestic violence and it's not like the workplace and being a working person prevents you from being abused. But they said that other women in the workplace um, will help get you out of that situation. 
they, you know, and I have had people come to me where they're literally being put up in their supervisor's home, you know, and so it seems to shorten it. Um, getting people out in the workplace, um, giving people economic independence really does help, you know, make people on a more equal footing. Um, yes. And, you know, they have more options if they want to leave. And we have to listen to people so that uh, we don't, you know, because this is going to be a very, you know, being exposed to domestic violence, however you want to call it, intimate partner violence, gendered, you know, violence. Um, if you're multiply exposed, you know, through your childhood, what we call adverse childhood experiences, people, those are people who have um, decades-long, you know, physical costs medical problems, mental health problems, social problems, cognitive problems. And it's a very expensive problem if we don't address it. And those problems don't just go away by developing a positive attitude. No, those they do problems, not. Yeah, and, and I do lose patience with, you know, I, I, I wrote once, you know, God save me from the, you know, the rainbows and unicorns positive attitude people. Mm-hmm. Um not that I'm saying you should wallow in your grief and, and dismay, but what I'm saying is, is that it's not that easy. It's not that easy. We have to, to acknowledge it. Wonderful. Yes, you yeah. have to acknowledge it and mm-hmm. recognize it and honor it. You know, Absolutely. that's the experience that you lived through. That helped shape you. Absolutely. Um, and I, I yeah, and I, th- I think that we, you know, in our zest to try to uh, um, remain positive. Uh, and I think those are mostly from those leftover 1970s studies that said that if we think good things, then good things will happen to us. Um, I, right. I, I think I wish. Our, our, Not so easy. Yeah, no. exactly. In which case, I'm thinking a million dollars and, you know, 36, 24, 36. That's what I'm thinking. Um, okay. But, <laughs> but I think that in our zest to, to embrace this positiveness, that we are doing a real disservice to people um, who have had traumatic experiences that have changed them physiologically, physically, emotionally, psychologically, I mean, in every way possible. Right. And you mentioned the ACEs study, which, uh, uh, fortunately, I was able to interview Dr. Felitti. And oh, fantastic, person, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely delightful. And um, I, I just really, I hadn't realized so much about the uh, childhood experiences Mm-hmm. And it's just—it's kind of like my new mantra now. This ACEs thing—I'm talking to everybody about it, and and of course I'm so delighted that that is in fact creating what we're calling the trauma-informed treatment, trauma-informed courts, et cetera, et cetera. I just hope that uh, when we're talking about trauma-informed, that we're also talking about domestic violence trauma. And Absolutely, I agree. Did I get to ask any questions? We've got one minute left, and I just am so enthusiastic about your book and your topic, and Thank you. I just want to make sure I didn't miss anything that you wanted to make sure you brought out. So, The only other thing I would say is that um, internationally there are treaties that we're not a part of, CEDAW, C-E-D-A-W, um, where you can bring in observers into the courts if the judge's decision is just really off the wall. So our country doesn't subscribe to those things, and I wish they did, because it's another no. resource that people could use. It was a pleasure. Thank so you very much for having me. So that that is, tell us quickly where people can get your book, and the name of the book again is? It's called Traumatic Divorce and Separation, and it's available at Oxford University Press for pre-order right now. It's coming out March 23rd. 
Yeah, great book. I I, bet, I have not read the book yet, but I've seen the table of contents, and it's extremely comprehensive. Thank, thank you so thank you. much for joining us. Thank you for listening. Three women, three ways. Join us next week.